Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. My guest today on The Art of Range is Dr. Derek Bailey. He's at New Mexico State University, uh, formerly at Montana State, and Dr. Bailey has been at the forefront of research on livestock distribution for uh, for as long as I can remember, which is a little bit more than it was a while ago. Uh, Derek, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tip. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to visit with everyone. In We've been doing podcast episodes for not quite two years now, and I don't think we've ever dedicated one just to livestock distribution, even though that kind of is involved in uh, everything else. And a lot of people would still say that distribution is the holy grail of grazing management, getting animals to go where food is and preventing them from damaging the most preferred plants by getting them to go somewhere else is a pretty big deal. And if it works well, it can cover over a lot of other problems. Uh, you've spent uh, what I would say has been a, a very fruitful career trying to better understand the different factors influencing livestock distribution and how to manipulate those factors toward healthy plant communities and more viable livestock operations. How did you come to be interested in uh, studying range science and specifically these particular aspects of range science? Uh, Tip, that question leads me back to my background. I grew up on a ranch in um, south central Colorado, little town La Vida, and our ranches, our ranch land was up in the mountains. And so I was always unhappy when the cows stayed at the bottom and didn't use the rest of the grass on, on the range and grazed the bottom, made kind of the riparian areas look bad. I just didn't like it. So then when I, I got, uh, uh, I took, I took range classes and got a master's and bachelor's in animal science and went to, uh, got my PhD in range science. Uh, my advisor, Dr. Larry Rittenhouse was real interested in grazing behavior. And so I actually started looking at it then and trying to understand the real basics behind grazing distribution. And then after I graduated, I worked for ranchers as a private consultant that are having issues with the BOM and the Forest Service. And most of those issues were associated with grazing distribution rather than just stocking, right? Usually there's enough grass, it's just that the cattle are grazing in the wrong places and that caused a lot of issues and, and a lot of potential litigation, conflict between agencies and uh, ranchers and so that's why when i finished i we really set my mind to it to see if we could figure out some things and and resolve those issues yeah i like that history i was scrambling a bit trying to figure out how we cover such a big topic these are these are things that whole books are written about and uh, we want to hit some highlights over the course of, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, so I, I think I think there's kind of four big ideas that'd be worth talking about. And I think we can uh, I think we can cover enough on each one of those to make it useful. Uh, I guess in my, in my mind, I would organize livestock distribution um, 
strategies into possibly at least four categories. Animal selection, uh, using attractants like supplement or water to move animals around, herding, and uh, various kinds of technology uh, that can be used to manipulate livestock distribution. But I, let's start with animal selection because I think it's probably the least known and has uh, – you've done a lot of you know, fairly recent research on animal selection. Uh, the other stuff, I think there's also some good current research on, but this may be a little bit more unique. Uh, Fred Provenza likes to say that nature fills voids with individuals, not averages, and that there's all kinds of things that influence individual animal behavior, things like breed, genetics, parental training, um, all kinds of stuff. And in a you know in an extensive and variable uh, natural environment. It's a lot more sustainable to try to modify the animal to fit the environment than it is to try to change the environment so that it matches the animal. Uh, what if you were going to try to summarize what you've learned about the genetics of animal grazing behavior over the last thirty years and how genetic selection can be used in range management? Uh, where would you start? I don't know. There's a I'd start with a line I always tell my students in my classes is that not all cattle are created equal and that there are some, and in my experiences, there's always some animals that are much more willing to climb and travel far from water than others. And we can take advantage of that two ways. Uh, one is we can try to train them and, and, and change the environment. And that's where Fred Provenza always, I mean, that's his 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 area he's done some great stuff but the other part is is the genetics you know what's everything is a mix of nature and nurture and nature is a strong thing and and ideally we've made maybe even less expensive if we could select we could figure out a way to select for livestock genetically maybe cheaper than trying to train animals because there we've done research we've been tracking cattle uh, since 1998 with GPS collars. And before that, we did a, quite a bit of work with just going out on horseback and visually observing cattle grazing patterns. And, you know, we really documented some huge differences in, in the way cattle respond. And we found that uh, some of that uh, is genetically implemented. Our guess is it may be that the potential heritability, and it's just a guess, is near the level of weaning, weaning weight, and that'd be like about 30% heritable. So there is some real potential. Uh, we've also found that that grazing distribution is associated with some genetic markers, and today the most genetic markers are uh, identified with uh, by the single nucleotide polymorphism SNPs and SNPs are used all through the beef industry and selection now as well for things like uh, meat tenderness and uh, reproductive traits and other issues we're using SNPs all the time and it's 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 become cheaper and cheaper to do to use genomic testing and so we found that they're associated with some things which which demonstrates that Grazing distribution is a genetically 
affected trait and it's it's like it's heritable can be passed on the issue is is that um that being able to do that we're not quite there we're not being able to use uh to identify bulls yet that would be more likely to sire daughters that would be climb more and travel further from water. And that's our goal to be able to select bulls because that's where the selection pressure is. And that's where we make the most progress. The problem with that is, is the reason for that is twofold. One is that the trade of grazing distribution is not really observable on the bulls themselves. You know, bulls, when you turn them out in a breeding season are preoccupied with cows and not necessarily grazing like they would normally. And then when you have, when they're not with the cows, typically you have them with a, a smaller group with just bulls away from the cows. And so that doesn't really get a chance to look at individual difference between bulls. So that, that's an issue. And then secondly, we're, there's a lot of differences between ranches and even between pastures within ranches. Uh, grazing distribution is a very complex trade and we're, we're trying to make some progress to be able to adjust for that so that we can do that. And another thing that has hurt us is the cost of GPS callers. Um, it's really difficult. In the past, we, we did our first research with that, with just hiring students and go out and watch cows and find where they are on horseback and record where they were. And that's too expensive. GPS tracking works well, but when I first started, GPS callers were $4,000. They're a lot less now. And uh, we can we're getting them for two hundred and fifty dollars now, and and there's real potential for that to be even maybe less than that, uh, maybe less than forty dollars or less. We're testing some of that equipment as well, and we'll probably visit about that later. But those things have limited, so we're trying to work on those issues to be able to identify because you can't. It's not like wean weight or yearling weight where you just run the cattle across the scale you need to measure them and to do that you need several days and that's a tricky thing to do but for sure it's probably genetically things and if we know if we can if we can ever if a rancher you could still use it if you identify cows that are climbing and find them on the far end of the pasture up on the ridges and you know their daughters those would be daughters i would keep yeah that makes me think of a question you know, if I'm if I'm a rancher, I may feel like I'm being told that I can select for all kinds of things, uh, and and terrain use or good distribution may not be at the top of my list. So, one question is: What do you say to the rancher who says I've got other things that are higher priorities to select for, either in, you know, culling cows or retaining heifers or picking bulls than livestock distribution. Uh, the other question is, are there other traits that we know of that are, you know, typically uh, connected or associated with good terrain use that are also useful? So it's not a, so you're not, you know, feeling antagonistic about the things that you're trying to pick. Well, first of all, I, I let me answer the first first question. It in some places they're absolutely right. I wouldn't pay attention to grazing distribution if I lived in in Missouri or Kansas and small pastures. Uh, you know, if if you're not in, if you don't have a grazing distribution, if you have small areas, if cattle don't have to travel more from, than a mile from water, or if they don't have to 
climb steep slopes, then I wouldn't waste my time. But in the West, and especially on public lands, grazing distribution is a big deal. If you have poor grazing distribution on, if you, and if you have a public land allotment, you're going to end up with problems and, and potentially even conflicts with the agencies because cattle may spend too much time near riparian areas. And you may be leaving a lot of grass on the table. In our experience, and we've monitored a lot of ranches. Our research is not just on university ranches, although we've done a lot of that too. We've worked all over the West and, and about often in big pastures, rough pastures, there's often about a, about a third of the pastures on average that aren't used or used very little. And so you're just, that could potentially be used. It's not like cliffs or things, but it's just areas a little steeper, farther from water and they're just not getting used. That could be used if we we're able to do that. And that's a lot of forage. I mean, very few of our technologies can improve things by up to like a, like a third or more. And mm -hmm. so I think there's a lot on the table. And if you have public land agencies, they can, you might, you risk you losing your permit or being removed from the permit or any kind of reductions. It's a big deal for those of us that have, have it. So they're right on that. And secondly, what the question is, is, is it important? Well, if it's, if it's important, then you need to worry about its impact to other traits. And we've definitely been doing that, worried about that. We've done two different studies when I was in Montana and we've been continuing to look at it and interested in it. Um, when I was in Montana on two sets of cows, we measured grazing distribution and all the things you would at a university ranch, weaning weight, birth weight, um, reproductive, uh, reproduction, like weaning and cavity rate, hip height, body condition score. And we didn't find a good relationship with any of them. We really think it's an independent trait. And then we looked at, we, this just more recently in New Mexico State, we looked again to see if there was any measurements of, of uh, body size. Um, so we took a lot of linear measures, hip height, shoulder height, hip width, the pins, and we didn't find any relationship either. We looked at that across about five ranches and it's just a, I think it's an independent trait, but some of the things that is related to that we can tell from looking at the genetic markers is, is uh, it seems to be associated with things like heat tolerance, maybe potentially uh, residual feed intake. Uh, Jim Sprinkle up at the University of Idaho has looked at that, and he's, he has some information that suggests, I mean, he needs more research, but suggests that cows with low RFI, so low intake, efficient cows, when it's hot, do a better job climbing and using steep slopes than high residual feed intake. And that might be a heat thing. Also, we've we found some associations with the same Genetic marsh is sort of with heat tolerance are also associated with terrain use. And so some of the things you might, it may be ability to tolerate heat, um, efficiency, those sorts of things. We haven't seen any adverse impact about it. Um, originally, people used to tell us that maybe that cows with that have higher milk production, bring in bigger calves, higher weaning weights would be the ones that stay in the bottoms and the ones that climb up on top would use up waste all that energy and have lower weight weights getting the bread less and all that and we certainly haven't seen that phenotypically and there's still the genetic associations that are important we haven't been able to do that yet but we're working on it and we're thinking about it 
but we just haven't seen it phenotypically. So I think it's kind of an independent trait in things that's, that's more like its ability to tolerate heat and, and, and efficiency. Those sorts of things may be more closely tied to it, and it doesn't look bad. No, that sounds encouraging. It sounds like it is something that you could select for independently without necessarily you know, losing some possibly beneficial traits that might be connected to that. That's, that's what we're thinking, and that's what we're, our hope. Well, let's move on to supplement placement. Uh, you've done a lot of work using supplement placement to distribute animals. Uh, my opinion is that, that the application of that research really has a double benefit for ranchers uh, in that, you know, one, the supplement enables animals to consume feed that would otherwise be marginal, uh, you know, but it also causes animals to be in places where they might not otherwise. And like you mentioned on the uh, regarding genetic selection, there's oftentimes large areas of uh, abundant grass that would otherwise be uh, perfectly good. But if they're two and a half miles from water, uh, they may not get used unless you can draw the animals there and hold them and then move them back. I want to say you were the first person that I heard use the term central place forager. And you were distinguishing livestock grazing behavior uh, between cattle and something like a, a sheep where cows probably because they've got a higher water requirement and just instinct tend to radiate out from a central attractant like hot water or supplement or an area that has uh, you know highly preferred feed positive or you know beneficial thermal conditions um, same question. How would you summarize what you've learned about supplement placement to manage livestock distribution in the last few decades? Well, and it is to, to start with your initial comments. I they are re- central place foragers because they really have a a water limitation. Um, in the West, when it's hot, cattle typically return to water once a day, and that's usually um, around it as it starts to heat up in the middle of the day, depending on the temperature, it may come in at 11 in the morning, 10 in the morning, nine in the morning, depending on temperature, uh, that can change some for desert cattle. But, um, once they come in and then they're, it's hot, they can take drinking water that drinking in the 20 gallons or so that they drink really reduces the heat load. They can seek out shade and often nearby. And so, but once they do that, then as the day cools off, um, you know, a lot of times that's when they often leave and uh, see, do their big grazing because cattle typically have two grazing baths, one in the morning, early morning, uh, sunrise till it starts getting hot, eight, nine, ten o'clock in the morning. And then as it cools off in the evening till it gets till through until it's after sunset and twilight grazing. And there's some grazing that occurs at night, uh, probably during moonlit nights. There's some grazing that occurs in the heat of the day, probably more if there's a riparian area nearby. So the, so the secret is, is to try to change and, and get them to go to the places you want once they leave water. You can't really change where they leave water, but you can change 
where they go. And they often seek out one of the things that we've, we've found is that uh, if you put out supplements, there's two ways you can really do it. One, you can, you can hand feed supplements like range cubes or cake. And if you put that out, they eat it up and then it's gone. And when you do that, poison a supplement, if you move them, there's no real ability for them to, to, to stay in that area very long. Our research says that the fidelity to where you place cake, the cattle may only stay there about an hour, as opposed to a self-fed supplement like a low moisture block supplement, um, tubs, barrels, or li liquid feeders. Those are different. Those are self-fed supplements, and that supplement is always there. And when that happens, the cattle tend to stay longer. Um, our research is like they spend within four or five hours within 100 yards of those supplements. And what this does is that they may go to those supplements towards the end of their evening grazing bout, may stay there, may go there uh, on their way to water and stop. They may loaf there. And so if you can get the, the supplement sites to become a loafing area, place where they rest, especially like in, in, from the evening grazing bow to the evening, they'll start out the next morning in that area because they're away from water and start their morning bout. So you've shifted their where they graze for each bout, and that may make a big difference. Hmm. You mentioned some of the different kinds of supplement. Would you say that the low moisture uh, options are the most useful for remote or rough terrain? Yeah, I think I think they're there because they're, they're, the low moisture blocks are about only 3% moisture. They only gain about 3% moisture. They're dehydrated, cooked, and they're highly palatable because of the last I said, and also because they, like in the wintertime, you can put in, when the forage is dormant, you can put in urea and, or uh, non-protein nitrogen sources. But you can pick them up. You can, they come from sizes of like 250 pounds down to 50 pounds. And you can transport them easily with four wheelers and a trailer, um, uh, you know, gators, all kinds of ATVs, throw them in the back of your truck. Liquid supplements work, but the, it's a hassle because they're they're only like 40% dry matter. So they're like 60%. Um, mm -hmm. And you're, water. you're hauling a lot of water and they're messy, especially in the wintertime. It's just a, it's, it's, it's harder to do if you if you can drive around then liquid supplements are fine we've tested both liquid and compared them to low moisture box they're both effective it's just a hassle factor yeah some of that supplement is not terribly cheap uh what would you what would you say about the cost versus the benefit has anyone tried to um, quantify that well you have to that's a critical question and and usually Self-fed supplements are more expensive than hand-fed supplements like cake or even alfalfa hay. But you got to count the labor that it takes to do it and your ability to change the distribution. you got to add it up all together. All those things are factors on what you want to use. For low-moisture blocks, you really only need to put them out, in our experience, with, with larger blocks at least, like every two weeks. And so you can, if you're going to go to a rough spot or distance away from things, it's not easy to get to, that gives you an advantage of time and labor. And the other thing is, is if you, 
you need to be able to take into the value of that forage that you did. And in our research, we, we did some economic analyses and uh, using some of the basic things from our experience of years of grazing thing. And, and usually it paid um, significantly to because of the extra grazing time. And so if you, if you have a third of the pasture that you can actually effectively change and use that, you might be able to extend your grazing season another like a third longer. And so I can, if you normally have after weaning in the fall, when you need some supplement anyway, because the grass is dormant, instead of two months, you might go get three months out and that saves you a month of hay. And saving a month of feeding hay is, can pay for more expensive supplements. So it's a matter of, of kind of penciling it all out and getting a, a feel for how much extra time you can get. Yeah, I would say that I've visited with a few pretty tough customers in Washington State in Oregon about the use of supplement. And uh, they're using, you know, pretty much all a rangeland after July 1 until whenever people uh, go home is dormant grass sometimes with crude protein that's lower than uh, lower than the seven percent necessary for maintenance and they would say that uh, they would affirm i think everything you just said the animals are going further in using grass they wouldn't have and they're also maintaining body condition better uh, evidently able to digest some feed that they would otherwise avoid right for sure just like and that's irrelevant to the source, but the nice thing with self-fed supplements is, is reduced labor and ability to track them to other areas. And that that gives extra value to help pay for the more expensive nature of self-fed supplements. Well, let's talk a bit about herding. You know, up up until up until the advent of fence, this was the norm for nearly all of human history. People you know, stayed with the animals and mostly took care of them and, and directed them because it wouldn't have been cost effective to have fence everywhere. Uh, and it's it's pretty effective. It's also more expensive, at least today. But I think a lot of people would say that that pays off as long as you're as long as you have enough animals to justify it. Uh, what are what are your thoughts about herding? Yeah, so yeah, it depends. It's one of those always that uh, college professors always have to be able to do. Is it depends, of course, and one of our favorite signs. And this is this is one that's true. Is that you need to have a situation where fencing is impractical or maybe not even possible on public lands. New fences, even electric fences, aren't always looked upon favorably. If you have a wild horse area. Certainly can't build any fences inside a wild horse area. There's issues with wildlife, with fences, even even electric fence, elk, especially are devastate electric fences, but deer and pronghorn do as well. So electric fences, although they're useful don't, on big country, are don't all aren't always feasible. And the thing about herding is you can design it for what you want. Um, the, the st thing is you have to have usually a problem or something to make it worthwhile. And on mm. public land allotments, that's an easier thing to do. Like, cause usually riparian areas are a big issue 
and we can do a lot of things to, to resolve it, like changing the season of grazing. But if you have to graze a pasture with a riparian area in the late season when it's hot, so like Washington, Northwest, most of the West, like you start from late July through early September, that's an issue. That's the hardest part. And that's why we did our research with riparian areas and herding in that time. Mm-hmm. In Montana, it's when, it's when it's hot, when uplands are dry and riparians are still green, you, the challenge is there to keep them out of there. And so to herd them, we used herding, and I don't think herding would all be effective if, if we hadn't have learned and taken the things of Bud Williams' low-stress livestock handling because we really we took it to heart and um, it made all the difference in the world. People, I used to, used to always say, with herding um that the cattle would beat them back to the creek and if and i think that's true if you if you don't use low stress hurling and you don't use some thinking about it so if you try to don't normally as good cowboys we like to get our saddle horses in the dark you know be up with the cattle as the sun barely peeps out we can barely even make out cattle and that's not what herding for placement should be, because the reason is when you herd, you want you're trying to move them to forage. And so if you move them early, about the time you get anywhere, shortly thereafter, they're going to need to go get water as the day gets hot. So your placement has done nothing. Mm-hmm. So so the secret is is to try to get them is to herd them more at midday. And so remember, as I talked earlier, as cattle come in about 10, 11 o'clock and then hang out and leave in the evening, well, during that time is when a, a great deal of the riparian degradation and issues occur. So what you want to do is let them go get a drink and then, he, then you know, get up late, eat a late breakfast, early lunch, and then saddle up and then move them out in the heat of the day exactly opposite of what everybody says to do and you can't really do it unless you have effective herding and so if you low stress stockmanship is usually effective you can do it with little stress take your time and move them away from the stream in midday so that you cut the time in the riparian area have them loaf and stuff somewhere else and start their grazing outside the riparian area we've done that and we've got a when we did do that we did it in Montana. We did in the heat of the day. We did it in August. And we definitely saw measure improvement in the time spent by measured GPS cars, increase in stubble heights, and we couldn't see any decline in performance. Now it's uh, you need you, it is not it takes some time and patience and certainly some low stress stockmanship skills to get that done. Well, if you you could probably do it otherwise, but you will probably be frustrated and Things the stockmanship makes a big deal, in my opinion. Yeah, that that reminds me of an experience I've had the last year or so. I was out the other day with uh, with a, a friend of mine here, looking at a potential grazing area, and we in in walking and riding through some areas, I was really surprised at the amount of difference in microclimate. Uh, from one spot to the next, even at the same elevation, sometimes even at the same slope. But there might be 10 or 15 degrees difference in the air temperature from one spot to another. You know, and we don't experience that because we don't walk or ride horseback when we travel anymore. 
Uh, you know, but obviously the animals know very well where those places are, and they're prone to find them. I would suspect that that would be one major factor in whether or not your placing is successful. You know, whether or not you found a spot that they're willing to stay in, or you know, if you try to put them here and they know that a quarter mile that way is a spot that's ten degrees cooler, uh, they're probably going to go over there. Right, and and so um, on placement. Placement is is critical in that and there's several things one thing is to is bud williams says you got to place them right that means you just don't when you're done you don't just right away um you need to slow them down and you can actually tell you want to put them in a good spot like you said tip in a cooler spot but you want to slow them down you want to take the movement out of the animals or else they'll just keep probably keep moving you want them to stop where the cows start grazing calves start nursing some calves may lay down, cows might lay down, but stopping grazing and nursing are some good signs that you have got the movement of the herd stopped appropriately. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's important, and that's something you learn in, in you know in a in a stockmanship class. But the other thing that's important that we thought is, is if if you're doing it, you're moving them to a place where there's some drier forage. You're you have some issues because the riparian area is still green usually. And so we put out, we tried to supplement and supplement did not really keep them out of the Creek. But what it did do is it held them where we put them. And we got a lot more use nearby because you take them to take them to a spot. And if they have a, like a we, we took low moisture supplement, we had salt. We took them to a spot that had those things and it was higher, should have been a little cooler. Um, then, then they cattle would would actually get to where they would be expecting the supplement, and they knew they were where they were going. And in the last, uh, almost the last quarter mile, sometimes the cows would trot even uphill to go to get there to get to the spot to get to the supplement to get to their turn first, and the calves would just stop, and it, and it really reduced the effort to place them because they they were placed man they stopped they were ready to eat and they knew it was there and so he did it for a few times and so he could do take them to a supplement and anecdotal guys of other herders in montana we visit with that it really helped taking them to supplement like it's it's almost like a reward at the end of the journey mm-hmm. and that i think that helps on the placement as well a couple more questions about herding uh, i suspect that when people think about this, at least my tendency is to think about herding cattle on larger landscapes as something akin to shepherding sheep, where you've got shepherds who are pretty much living with the animals. Um, Is that necessary or is there, because that may feel like to a lot of people that that's unattainable, unsustainable, not affordable. You know, can you get some of the benefits of of herding without something like a 24 seven day dedicated person. Right. And, and I think that's absolutely the case. I, it's, it's totally different because what you want to do is you re you're just moving them away from a spot to a spot that they want, where you think cattle will want to be. And if you, and Bud would, Bud Williams would say is that if you do it right, the cattle will want to be where you put them. Now, I don't know about that, but you try to create a spot. And so your, the idea is you're just trying to move them to a new spot rather than stay with them. And we've had some luck. You probably don't. We did it in a riparian area. We did it every day. But 
one of the things that was interesting is on the riparian area, after we started doing that, we only ended up having to herd on 60% of the days because soon the cattle figured out that some some cowboy on horseback is going to come there in the middle of the day anyway. And so they just started leaving. And so I think if you did that system long enough, you would only have to periodically reinforce it. And we also did some in Arizona and New Mexico in the wintertime um, for dry forage with the idea of using herding to place them to change where they graze and maybe even to use underutilized feed and maybe even to make uh, fire fuel reduction issues. And then we did it every other day, like maybe four or five times a week. And we were really successful. And the cattle would often go the other days. So essentially, the herding, repeated herding only became like reinforcement. And every time, if you move the supplement, you of course have to remove them to that area. So I think you can do it with a lot less work. And the longer the cattle become accustomed to it, you know, get the routine, I think the less you'll have to herd, they'll catch on. Uh, the last question that I've got on this is whether uh, you've seen some renewal of the idea of a grazing association to justify the cost of uh, a herder in situations where, you know, a grazing area is too remote for a rancher to, you know, run up there two or three times a week um, themselves. Do you think that's worthwhile or where you could, you know, put together enough animals that it, that it makes it affordable? And then the second part of that question is, is that uh, compatible with public land leases anymore? In other words, you know, if you've got, you know, four BLM permittees that want to do something like that, and instead of uh, running all separately, run together and have somebody uh, take care of them, um, would that be, is that a viable option? It is for some people, but, in, but there's a, there's some rules. I mean, you gotta, for some folks that, that will work well. If there's already, if there's already, uh, if it's a common allotment and there's already multiple permittees in the same allotment, that's a real option. Um, but there are some issues about running in common and that, and, and there's some resistance to that because of bull selection and, and uh, disease issues and things like that. So you, you got to respect that as well. So there, 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 but that doesn't mean you couldn't jointly, multiple permittees couldn't jointly hire a, a, a skilled herder. You could just do it on Tuesdays, go to one spot, Wednesdays, go on another spot. Mm-hmm. That's very right. feasible. And so I think the idea of getting crazy associations, things are there, but it doesn't mean you, you can't afford or can't do it unless you have a common allotment. I think that's not the case. And, and another thing to realize is that you're not going to move the entire herd each day. If you have large herd, six, 700 head, you're still maybe only moving 30, 40 at a time because you simply in rough terrain in that the cattle are going to be scattered. And that is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, some folks would like to really keep them all together for herd impact and that, and that's a different issue. But when you're trying to so, to get distribution in mountainous rough terrain, you may want to have smaller groups of cattle and just move different groups different days. And so if you go, you, you like one herder may be just fine to move 30, 40 here one day and then go a few days, move another herd, and you still might have really good impacts. Um, it, there's lots of ways to skin a cat and that, 
you don't always have to move the entire group or expect to. It may be different. In our experience, some days we started off moving. We had herds of about 60 just experimentally. That's all we had to do. And sometimes we moved 50. Sometimes we moved 10. And that's all that we found in riparian areas. So it's just a matter of uh, you, you end up cattle move up into, into groups and go different places. And so you just need to move the ones that are the biggest issue. Redirect them. Yeah, I think part of what I'm hearing is that it's really effective to combine different methods, such as, uh, you know, this version of herding plus using supplement. And you're almost retraining the animal's daily movements to to be something that's more useful in terms of uh, avoiding things like riparian areas and getting to grass. I want to say that that you've done some research on um, combining technology, you know, low cost technology with supplement. Then what I'm what I'm recalling was some research where there was a a, a flag, a visible flag planted in the ground next to supplement. And then whenever the supplement moved, the flag went with it. And eventually the animals learned to associate uh, the flag with the supplement. And then you could put the flag somewhere and the animals would go straight to it. Uh, that's Quite a bit lower cost and lower complication than, you know, say a GPS collar and a virtual fence. <clears throat> Am I remembering that right? And and was that effective? You know, how long would that association last? Yeah, I that that um, a buddy of mine, Bob Welling, I uh, used to work for uh, Ridley, um, and tried that, and he had a little luck. It, it's a great way to probably attract them to an area to see if they find it. But one thing you have to remember is cattle are smart. They're really smart. We don't give them credit. How smart. They'll immediately figure out if, if they see flags and there's supplement provided, then they'll associate the flags with the supplement. But if they go to the flags and there's no supplement there, they will immediately blow it off. I can, and, and that, so I don't think it would last very long. One, one thing, for example, you can quickly do is if you ever notice, we, we used to, we were herding cattle around and had supplement off and on. And if you saw, if they happened to see a black barrel that we had rolled away, didn't pick up, which we normally try to pick up, but sometimes we missed them. If they saw a black barrel, which was, which the, the low moisture block was in, they would just run to it. And then instantly they would take off and leave it if it's empty. So that idea of using the flagging is a good way to, to help them locate it if you need to. But I don't think it's not going to last. Um, and we've done some. We've heard some ranchers anecdotally that they were hoping that once they got the, once they did this once, they wouldn't have to. Once they got the cattle used to climbing for the supplement, they could just quit feeding the supplement, and it it didn't work out very well. Yeah, it's they they may do it some, but once they know once they know it's not there, they know it. Well, that sounds quite a bit like electric fence. You know, electric fence is a psychological barrier rather than a physical one. And if if animals experience a hot fence, they learn pretty quickly to avoid it. But uh, if the fence goes down, it doesn't take very long before that psychological barrier is removed and they just walk right through it. <laughs> that's exactly right. That's, that's, I mean, it just, you, you, you got, you know, you just, you just can't, it's, it is hard to, to trick them very long, cattle very long. Well, what are some other I mean, stuff like electric fence is an obvious technology that's been around for quite a while. 
And it's a little bit trickier to use that in, you know, more rugged and remote environments. Are there, I mean, there's a lot of talk right now about virtual fence, e-fence, you know, different brands, different approaches. On virtual fencing, there's been a, a lot of work over the years. My colleague right across the parking lot from me, Dean Anderson, did the bulk of that work and got that started. Um, and it's, but it has never really completely taken off. There's a lot more interest in it now. A lot more companies doing it. Origins in Austria, in Australia, and and several, a few here in the U.S. And it's moving. It's it's a, they have viable electric products that that seem to work but there it's still issues and there's still cost things so we'll see if they if these companies are successful but the whole idea of virtual fence is is neat and i just caution everyone to think is that you can't expect it to do everything um you i think if the more complex things are the the more issues that will be and that cost will go up. So I think the simpler use, the simpler systems, what would be great is to be able to have some system to keep, to limit access to riparian zones without having a fence so that you, you could let wildlife, fishermen, tourists, everybody else go through and still keep the livestock off of it. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of talk about using it to even move the animals, which there's labor intensive and it's, it's a hassle, but uh, sometimes the, the more complex it is, the more I'm worried about being and higher the cost. And so it's, it's new research. It's exciting. We'll see what's happening. I, I'm even signed up in two or three weeks for a new webinar on virtual fencing out of Australia. I'd be really interested to see where they are. Uh, my colleagues in Australia have been testing that there's still some technical issues that they've been working on. Hopefully they have them fixed. And it's still expensive. So it's one of those sort of things that we'll see. Price of electronics are going down. Things are getting better. Maybe it'll work. But it's certainly one of those things that you could do to, to potentially save some real issues on public lands where there's a high, you know, there's a high value of change in distribution. You know, the same, the same rationale that we use to justify herding is the same reason that virtual fence might pay as well. Mm-hmm. Are there some maybe lesser known technologies that would be useful for managing livestock distribution that are not quite as uh, sexy as virtual fence that people ought to know about? Yeah, there's other there's other people talking about it. I mean, virtual fence first started at the Oregon State, and they they tried it out and even and successfully tested a virtual fencing system at. Uh, let's see the great basin national park. And, and it was a, instead of using a GPS to locate the animals and pick the thing, it was more like a, like we use for the invisible fences for our dogs and our yards. It, they set up, used uh, directed antennas to dig beams. And then once it got close that there was an audio tone, just like an electric, like a dog collar and then a, a charge. And those may still be a symptom. There's some interest in that. Uh, Karen launched by University of Idaho is thinking about testing some of that. So there may be some other options related to virtual fencing that are simpler, maybe cheaper. Well, it's, it's just a matter of cost, time. And and although technology companies always, they promise the moon, it's, it's getting them out there and test them in the real world is the real proof of the pudding. And we just hope something comes up better. Yeah, you, you've had a lot of experience with GPS collars. Uh, do you feel like there's some applications for, you know, the average commercial rancher to 
have some applications for GPS collars, even if they're not using them in combination with, uh, you know, a virtual fence type system just for tracking animals. Yeah, we're really working on that ourselves. It's, there's one for sure is that it's sometimes really nice to know and, it, and, and the cost of GPS collars are going down. So it's really interesting if you have an issue, you could just, you, you, you'd probably be able to build or, build or buy GPS collars and then and be able to do it. And, and the way we have done it for years is that the data is stored on board, on a unit. So you get the cows in, put on a collar, and then maybe in at branding and then get them off at weaning in the fall. And then you can see where they've been. And, and we've been doing that for years. And that can have some real value for ranchers as well to, to, to put on a few just to see where their cattle go. Um, all our branch or all the cooperators and other research always really enjoyed that. But more recently, I never thought it, I was worried it would never happen in my lifetime, but it, it's, it, it's getting more and more likely there's a commercial unit now is a real time or a near real time GPS tracking. Um, GPS tracking in real time is used all the time as the shipping and value chains to see where everything is. And because of that, that technology is getting cheaper and faster and battery technology is improving. So one of the things that might be really useful is to use real-time GPS tracking to help us manage. For example, if we knew where the cattle were going every day and where they weren't, we could respond when riparian areas start to be an issue and either move them, go herd them then, respond to them more quickly. If there's an area of concentration, if there's an area they're not being used, we could use that information for uh, to respond immediately if we knew where they were. And I've had ranchers, ever since I've been doing this, asking about, hey, where can I buy one of those to find my cows so I can bring them in or find just find my cows? <laughs> and I've always said, well, you really can't do that. We just, we got to wait till we get them gathered to find out where they've been, not where they are. Mm-hmm. And this that may be changing. There's a company. There's several companies out there promising it. Uh, we've we've been testing one called that's called Movement with two O's, Movement, and um, and it, it it looks promising. It uses uh, new Internet of Things and LoRaN gateways and cell phone technology. So there's a it's a tag that has a battery, even has a solar charger on the tag. And then it, it sends a position every hour. And they're, st- they're still working on it. They still have some issues, but it, they're working on it. And it, it seemed to work pretty well in gentle terrain. The thing is, it needs pretty much needs lines of sight. So it's going to be more difficult in the, to use in mountainous terrain where we probably need it the most. Um, another company, Cirrus, is, uh, we're hoping to be able to test one of their tags soon. Another company, Australia, it uses satellite to transfer the things and they're hoping to have a at least a beta version that to test start t- testing on ranches we're going to hopefully be testing on ranches in australia and in the western u.s to see how well that works and that would solve the problem of having antennas all over the place that that's the restriction mm-hmm. with the movement but i think just just knowing that would help and the other thing is that that comes with having real-time gps besides knowing where they are and be able to manage appropriately and see distribution issues and opportunities. And also we can use to, to uh, see if put them on bulls to see if they're staying with the cows, to see if animals are ill. Cause if they're ill, they don't move. 
we could see if a water system tank failure, because if normally cattle go to water, drink, and then leave, if they just stay at water, we all know that there's an issue. And we, if we had that in real time, we could more quickly respond and even remotely monitor whether a tank and water system has a potential failure. So there's a lot of uses for having these real-time GPS and accelerometers um, can often be fitted on the same thing. There's some companies that sell near or real-time accelerometers for detecting changes in feeding time, behavior, activity. It can be associated with illness, uh, calving, things like that. So all, having all that information could be really useful for us. Yeah, absolutely. If a, if a person was going to do that, uh, you know, say you've got a mother herd of 500 cows, would you, would you put a GPS unit on 10% of them? Any idea kind of what percentage would be useful to get uh, valuable data? Yeah, I, I you know the, the ideally, of course, would be to put one on everything, and then you could tell, sure. watch for illness and sickness. But right. for distribution, you could probably do that with a smaller percentage, maybe like you say, ten percent, five percent, what you can afford, and you could probably play with it um, and keep keep using that. I'm I'm just excited about that. There's the Sentinel approach, you know, that's why having a few done. That idea has can can solve quite a few issues, especially like where are the cattle going, be easier to find the cattle if we had that and, and have an idea. If we use it for illness and things, or it may be difficult. And for sure, probably one of the first places I would always put it on and I'm, is on a few cows and the bulls. The bulls are a big deal. And so if we can figure out a way to get it on bulls, uh, because of the potential of a bull is not doing his job and not following the cows and not getting out, maybe because he's injured or just lazy, low libido, you can find out right away. And that has some real potential on reproduction, which is always the number one determinant of profitability in a cow-calf ranch. So I'm really excited about the potential of putting on bulls. They just got to be tough enough to withstand bulls. <laughs> That's the issue. Yeah. <laughs> so I think there's a lot of opportunity for it. And um, there's a lot of companies working on it. And I'm hoping that I'm getting, I definitely getting a little long in the tooth. And I'm really hoping that by the time I retire, we'll be, we'll have a cost effective real-time GPS unit. We may have virtual fence as well. That sounds great. Uh, I could talk about this all day, but we probably should wrap it up. Is there anything that you wanted to say that we haven't talked about yet? I, I think that, I think the secret is, is that it's, that you mentioned it earlier tip is that, to take advantage of multiple things. It's, distribution is an expensive, tough thing. And if we can try multiple things, all our, all our research, even picking the best cattle, um, picking cattle that used, that, that travel better, more adapted, um, use and taking advantage of supplements instead of throwing it out the water hole. If we, can, if we can put it out where we want the cattle to be and show them, if we need to herge once in a while, don't be afraid to saddle up the horse and use a real biologic thing. Uh, I certainly highly recommend taking a stockmanship class and learning those skills. It's fun and exciting and, and, and thing and, and keep your ear ground on all the, the new changes in technology. There's like, it's still people promise the moon, but pay attention to universities and extension folks and, and, you know, 
your neighbors and friends and see what the new technology brings. There's, it's a kind of an exciting time there. And we, if we combine all these things, we can probably make a huge difference and make ranching sustainable and um, really show off all the great things that the livestock industry can do, the, do in the West. You know, We can produce great meat, great food in a very sustainable way. Very good. Uh, Dr. Bailey, thank you very much for your time. Thanks a lot, Tiff. Appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity to visit with everyone and, and visit with you. It's been fun. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. Thank you.